Paceline is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, I, I'm having New England envy again. Well, cut it out. <laughs> uh, I went out riding this morning. It was 43 degrees with a uh, steady 15 mile an hour scratch wind. That. Scratch, scratch, scratch that. <laughs> Gusts up to 30. Uh, somewhere <sighs> along in our ride, one of one of my companions fell off and hurt themselves and had to be pick, picked up by their significant other. Ooh. And as we sat there waiting with him by the side of the road, we throws our nards off i don't even know what a nard is but they are gone <laughs> wow uh oof oof um yeah golly <sighs> there, there were rocks involved mm, mm, that's that's a shame well uh we we here with uh wish him a speedy recovery yes Yes, I have. In fact, I don't. This is not today's story, but he did text the picture of an X-ray with a big uh, circle on it, uh, highlighting the fracture in his hand. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's rotten. You know, the thing about New England is we have this very rocky uh, soil, thanks to mm -hmm. the last ice age. And so a lot of times you fall off and you hit, you know, loamy, leafy. It's fine. And then. But it's a it's a spin of the roulette wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I remember mountain biking at Mount Tom once and I came over this little rise and was on my way. It, you know, it was a, it was a very short downhill, <clears throat> 20 feet. Mm. But interrupting the trail on its way down was a slab of granite that was tilted uh, so it was pointing downhill, but also tilted to the left. And prior to um, allowing my bicycle on top of that granite, I didn't realize that it was damp. <laughs> yep. I have never conveyed myself to the ground so quickly in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those where the impact was so hard that I had to jump up to make sure that I was still okay. Mm. <laughs> I still wonder about that behavior, but yeah, I like, I, there was a, there was actually, there were streaks on the piece of granite where you could see how my front wheel, yeah. uh, the tire had just slid sideways and stopped rotating because there were these three lines uh, across the, ever so slightly mossy surface 
I did something similar just a month ago. Uh, we were out on mountain bikes and we were coming back via the bike path. And next to the bike path, they had constructed or they have constructed a series of benches. Mm-hmm. And these benches are uh, large boulders. Not They're not large boulders. I should say small boulders that have been cut uh, to take a granite um, or a granite slab. Uh So that the bench part is a very nicely cut rectangle of granite with these boulders holding it on either side. And I spied one of these things and I was like, well, I'm definitely riding that. So I I take a line towards it and I put my wheel on the rock and I've nailed it. I mean, in my mind, I'm even like, oh, you're a very clever fellow. Look at you. And uh, as soon as my front wheel hit the granite, um... (laughs) I I unhad it uh, <laughs> and found myself sitting on the bench with my bike uh, sort of catapulted off the end of the bench in the other direction. Oh, wow. Yeah, that granite, it was slightly moist, as you experienced, and it mm-hmm. was slicker than goose poop. It was just. Yeah. Yeah. I even mean, a knobby tire running very low pressure. uh <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rock, man. Yeah. The ways we find to fall down. Anyway, uh <laughs> best of luck to Chapman uh with his Indeed. broken hand. Yes. Uh all right, lead us out, sir. Okay. So a friend of mine, uh who was also on this ride but didn't damage himself. Yeah. He came he came over a few weeks ago for some fitting help. Uh-huh. Uh, he felt his saddle height was wrong, so he wanted me to look at that. And, of course, as we got into that, I discovered quickly that his bars and brifters were not right. Uh, so we got those neutralized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that process, determined that actually his bars were too narrow. Uh, he's somewhat broad, but he was riding 38 millimeter bars. <laughs> um, so after we got his reach close to where it should be, we set his saddle best we could. And then I sent him to get new bars and come back another time to look it all over. This is not uh, the anatomy of a fitting. And to be clear, I am not a bike fitter. <laughs> uh, what struck me about this thing is, I mean, this is a thing that, you know, people have come over to my house for help with bikes for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, dubious help, but help nonetheless. And, um, what struck me this time is that in this process, I didn't actually just have a spare set of 40 millimeter road bars. Uh, I have three or four stems left, mostly 90 or hundred millimeters. <laughs> I have some flat bars of various widths. I think I have one old alloy seat post At some point, I made a conscious decision to stop hoarding parts and to actively give things away to people who needed them. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even I don't even they're like, let me give you money. I don't even care anymore. Um, This is not generosity on my part. I think it's laziness. Uh, So I have a lot fewer spare parts. And that's you know, that's by design to a degree. I wanted less clutter in my life. In fact, though, I have less of everything. I used to keep so many tubes, you know, all the sizes, uh, all very neatly stacked on a shelf to be uh, consumed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to have backup bar tape, probably in both black and white. 
Uh, I usually have a complete drivetrain hanging around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought of those things as kind of the basics. Uh-huh. Um, but the basics for what? So, you know, and like what what has changed? Um, I realized a lot for me. Um, I own fewer bicycles. Um, I think when I moved into this house a little over a decade ago, I had like 12 <laughs> and now okay. I have five. Uh-huh. Um, I'm no longer acquiring and building bikes like I was for a decade or two. Um, because I worked for a custom bike builder, I have three custom bikes. And frankly, it just doesn't make sense for me to add bikes in those categories because those bikes are perfect. I don't, yeah, I don't. Yeah, there's not, I can't, I'm not shopping for an upgrade. Um, I guess I'll upgrade the components at some point, but I'll be waiting to make a great leap forward with those. I'm just not going to like inch them forward group by group. <laughs> um, I also, and I think this might be a big deal. I also no longer have ready access to a QBP account. Oh, for those not living their best bike industry lives, QBP <laughs> is quality bicycle products and they are the primary distributor of wholesale bike parts in the United States. There are others, but they're kind of the they're the big they're they're the eight hundred pound gorilla. Nine they are the ones. pound. Yeah. Um yeah. So they sell all, all manner of things as well as many of their own in-house brands. Uh they own Surly and All City bikes and a lot of those things were incubated inside QBP and then launched. And because QBP has a direct pipeline into bike shops all over the place, these sort of in-house brands aren't that hard to get off the ground. Anything. Um, yeah. When I had access to a regular QVP order, I was in the habit of stocking my pantry with chains and brake pads and all the stuff you use and replace, not to mention components that I thought were particularly cool that I would set aside, like, you know, for a later build or or some project. Like, I don't know what this is going on, but it's going to go on something. <laughs> or like, you know, if I found a saddle I really liked, I'd be like, OK, I'll buy a few of these because they'll go on future bikes. So I'm both buying fewer bikes uh building fewer bikes and collecting fewer parts to build future bikes with Mm. um so i'm not doing any of that stuff anymore i seem to have run through most of my back stock um i i work with enough bike shops that i can still get most things i need without paying full price uh, but that's complicated both for me and the shops, so I only use those privileges sparingly. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you is, what do you think, and I also, I suspect you're the wrong person to ask this question. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my please, question, fire away. Yeah, my question is, what is, it, what is a reasonable backstock? What should people have on hand? You know, like if you were a cyclist that has, um, uh, say a gravel bike, a road bike, a mountain bike, what, what sorts of things do you think they should have on hand? Uh, okay. Bar tape, bar tape. You should Uh, just have that on hand. You don't think that's a thing you can just buy as you need it. Um, I, I like having it on hand because if something happens and like the, the, the bar tape gets all torn up, 
having it just there at home, already there, so that I can jump in and do it at my first opportunity yeah. without needing to go to a bike shop first to yes. pick up uh, some. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm very much a believer in that, uh, spare tires, spare tires, uh, tubes, of course, if you're still running tubes, uh, if you're not running tubes or if you're also running tubeless (laughs) sealant, man, gotta have some sealant on hand. I, uh, that's one where way too often I found myself needing to you know top off a tire with more sealant and didn't have it there and then had to walk over to it i mean i'm i'm also just silly fortunate in that uh until they closed you boarded up the gate i was uh a hundred yards from uh, a bike shop and you know now i'm 140 yards from a bike shop um yeah that helps it's a handy handy thing um, but yeah, so let's see, uh, a, a chain is another thing that I always have at least one of on hand. Um, so like, is that one for each bike? No, um, it's, it's one for each size of drivetrain. So I think there's still a 10 speed in there somewhere, which I should probably do something about, but I, <laughs> I have, Two or three 11 speed chains. Um, I also have at least two only slightly used 11 speed chains that definitely have more miles in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one 12 speed chain uh, in reserve. <sighs> um, I knew you were the wrong person to ask. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so I have I have lots of spare stems. I have spare bars. I have spare cassettes. And those are things that, uh, have come about. We'll chalk that up to occupational hazard. Right. And right. I'm, uh, let me be clear. I am not advocating that someone have spares of those on hand. Um, I can say that, you know, I can I can uh, articulate this in the negative because the number of occasions I come across where uh, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to swap out for that bar. That is not a thing that happens. Yeah. Well, when you brought up bar tape, I thought to myself, yeah, the reason that bar tape is not because you want to replace bar tape. It's because you want to replace something else. And putting the old bar tape back on is only a fun, fun game once or twice. Yeah, uh, I think I do have some previously used bar tape in a box. It was really good bar tape and it didn't get used for all that long. It's like I am I definitely have to resurrect this. Yeah. And I have not. I have a freezer bag, I think, that contains some Brooks leather grip tape that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I put on and used and thought maybe leather bar tape isn't really a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's just not your thing. Maybe it's not my, that's what I mean. It's very nice. It's a nice product. I just, you know, I can't have nice things. Um, uh, I just had another one that was, that popped into mind. Um, 
Oh, uh, cables and housing. Um, very often, if I remove um, a rear derailleur cable, you keep I'll it just, for the front. Yeah. 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 And reusing uh, cables, that is something that definitely has happened with me. Um, for various reasons, I'll find myself in a situation where uh, I. Yeah, I need uh, a, a new cable somewhere. I tend to also keep a fresh cable, you know, from the bike shop uh, for rear derailleurs. I tend to keep one of those around um, as well. Uh, I've got spare lengths of uh, old cable housing. Yeah, um, I, I do. As just well. in case. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, I need to admit that I'm not using I'm not going back to that stuff in that drawer much anymore. Well, this is what I feel happening because I have I do have like an array of housing of various lengths. And and it, it, in past years, I've thought, oh, I got to cut a piece of housing for the real derailleur. Oh, no, I don't. I have real derailleur housing <laughs> all ready to go. Just throw it on there. Um. But as you say, like, I just am not doing those things anymore. And part of that is a change in the way bikes are made. Uh, and part of that is a change in the way I address my mechanical needs. Not, you know, mm -hmm. having five bikes instead of 12 uh, lowers the uh, lowers the bar on what you've got to have around and what you end up working on anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And there's there's also... You know, when a when a bike's custom, you are much less likely to mess with any aspect of it. That's right. Because it's right. That's right. And when you buy a production frame, uh, you know, from a bike shop, from eBay, from, you know, however you came by it, um, it's it's a canvas. It's a very different thing. Yeah, I have never bought a stock bike, a production bike, and not then uh, either upgraded or swapped parts to get better fit, better all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, I, I, they, yeah, they're fundamentally different. Um, uh, production frame is a canvas on which to paint. Mm. Um, and yeah, in that regard, it's much more, well, to use a different term, malleable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. or yeah. labor intensive is another word. <laughs> <laughs> guess that's oh, two words. Actually. I tend to keep mountain bike grips around now, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, more and more I'm, I think I'm going to be buying, uh, the, the old man grips with the little wings on them. Oh, the Ergons. Yeah, yeah. I, I've come full circle. I bought uh, the Ergons. Uh, I went, went to all Ergons, and now I've gone in a, another direction mm -hmm. uh, again. I've gone to young people grips, <laughs> <laughs> which I like. But I, I, can, I, think, I think actually mountain bike grips are interesting the way tires are interesting. You know, for very short money, you can... Um, you can experiment quite a bit and find out what you really, really like. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I used to have more saddles on hand. 
Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure what happened. Well, no, actually, I probably do actually know. I just hadn't given it any thought before. Um, all of my, uh, all of my physique and Tari's saddles, mm-hmm. uh, each different iteration of that, the, the shell broke at oh. some point. Oh, um, and so I, I killed every one of those, but I've never killed any of my Aliantes. And I am coming to the conclusion that while I love the way that saddle feels, mm-hmm. the way it distributes pressure over uh, a quite wide swath of my undercarriage, <laughs> that may not be the best saddle for me anymore. Oh. Yeah. Because so, there's more of you than there was? No, um, I, I think... I'm sorry, I'm, that was a cute and... Uh, that was a... No, you're going to love this. <laughs> that was a cheeky question. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there is more of me than there used to be. There is more of me than I would like. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, with... One of the things that happens with age is uh, tissue compresses. Um, oh. And I... Th- think that I get more, I get numbness more easily on that saddle. Um, and so that's replacing those saddles is going to be interesting because what I'll go with, I won't be sitting on in the same way. And so there will have to be some real work in, uh, figuring out what that saddle position is to keep my fit consistent. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, a that's a side recommendation from this particular poll, which is uh, we, we often talk about the value of a bike fit. And one of the great values that some bike fitters offer is a saddle library uh, that yes. you can you can borrow from and figure out um, what what color your parachute is, what shape your posterior is or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the uh, analogy is here. Yes. Yes. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I I think we've covered everything that I'm inclined to say is worth having. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, what I've learned is that I don't need to replenish everything, but I probably do need to connect with one of my bike shop friends <laughs> and uh, get some bar tape and some other, other little odds and ends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually low on bar tape at this point, so I'm going to have to take action myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. We're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute. The pace line is underwritten by Shimano North America. That means they help us pay for software and hosting and the M&Ms in our dressing rooms. Shimano are also nice enough to let us talk about them in our own voices and from our own experiences. For example, I did a lot of research on Shimano road wheels when I was putting together complete bike packages when I was at 7 Cycles. We turn to Shimano wheels because they're rock solid, affordable, and readily available. The wheel market is full of fantastic options. Shimano's wheels often fly under the radar. You should really check them out. They have killer carbon fiber wheels at the 105 level now, the C32 and C46, and of course, if you're shooting for the stars, you can get the C36 and C50 at Altegra and Dura Ace levels. See them all at road.shimano.com. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What do you got for us this week? Well, 
Yesterday, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. So yesterday was Tuesday. Everybody's hearing this on Thursday or later. Uh, yesterday, I decided to shelve my planned poll for this week because of a post by the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department on social media. Before I go any further, let me just say that I am not someone who follows law enforcement on social media. Um, also, I don't do next door. I don't next door. That's, I don't know what next door is. Explain that. Uh, it's a it's another social media thing for uh, for like very local. It's very localized. So within your neighborhood. Um, is and it, it is it the modern equivalent of having a police scanner? Uh, no, no, it's it's um it's tin cans with string um and the other the other person at the other end is your neighbor screaming at the kids to get off their yard. Oh, okay. It's uh interested. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, I'm not I'm not the sort of person who's always like yeah. keeping up on the the latest weird thing going on in town that needs to stop right now. Got it. That is not who I am. Yeah. But uh there was a post about a bust the day before. So this guy, Carl Kuhn of Santa Rosa, was arrested for possession of stolen property and some other stuff, including drug paraphernalia and, yeah. you know, bad people stuff. Right. Why do I care about Carl Kuhn? Well, he was in possession of 22. Yes, 22 stolen bikes. Uh, he was also in possession of stolen travel trailer, a, a fifth wheel style, you know, going camping trailer. Um, a stolen UTV, two stolen motorcycles. And here's the thing. The jackpot was not the 22 bicycles. It was the 27 guns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many they didn't specify this. So I don't know how many of the guns were stolen, but they did make clear that at least one of the guns was a ghost gun. That is, it had had its serial number removed. Um. Based on one of the photos, uh, I've concluded that he must have a shipping container on the property. Um, and it looks pretty well full of tools. Uh, there are multiple chainsaws, like, I don't know, seven or eight. Uh, there are drills, a shop vac, a compressor, multiple tool bags, which look to be full of tools, um, and more bikes. Um mm. It had the appearance of like, if it wasn't tied down, it was going home with him. Yeah. What, whatever it was. Um, a, a little bit of a hoarder, though. He, you know, it, there's not a lot of indication that he was selling the stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know. His bail was only $30,000 and he's out now. He posted that. Um, and I'm guessing he's doing more of what he does. Uh, the reason I'm relating this, uh, here's the real point of the poll. Uh, I have been mystified by how hard it is to speak with the proper people at the sheriff's department about viewing the stolen goods. Uh, given the number of bicycles I've had stolen, the fact that he was in possession of 22 leaves me to think that there's some small opportunity there for me to maybe recover one of my stolen bikes. Um, or four. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, that would that would claw back most of the ones that have been stolen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I've called them. Uh, they've relayed me to the proper department. I've left a message. I've called back. Uh, nothing. And, you know, on top of that, there's the fact that, like, when you've got an ongoing case, they want to keep the stolen goods as evidence. You know, they want to hang on to it. If you just want your stuff right back, uh, if you want your stuff back right away, um, they don't prosecute. Uh, and I expect most of us just want our stuff back. I, w- I can't imagine that you need a bike as evidence. I would suspect that a picture of the bike would suffice. That seems perfectly reasonable to me, but I've heard multiple times that, well, they, they need the physical object to show the judge or something. They're not wheeling bikes into a courtroom. I don't buy it, but go uh, on. Uh, yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Um, but, you know, I just want my stuff back, you know, and... Even in the post on social media, the sheriffs say they're working to contact the rightful owners of the property. Um, I suppose they're going through, you know, uh, stolen property reports uh, and just trying to, you know, match stuff up as they have as they have information for. Uh, But as of this recording, I'm still waiting for a callback or any sort of movement of any sort on this um and it's like good grief uh we we need a better system out there of of reuniting people with stolen bikes also something more needs to be done to discourage people from stealing bicycles can we just agree on that public flogging or something like that yeah yeah um well but i there's a paradigm here that i think I think has uh, an effect. So we're bike people Mm. and we know what bikes today cost. Mm -hmm. Um, We, you and I, I think we operate uh, in a context where if you are an everyday bike rider, bike riding is a part of your life. The, overwhelming likelihood is that you're riding a bike that costs more than a thousand dollars. If you are not an everyday cyclist, you are maybe aware that bikes can cost more than a thousand dollars, but you're still kind of laboring in some Norman Rockwell past where a bike is a hundred bucks. Oh, I can't Mm -hmm. believe they spend more than 200 or 300 or, you know, I've heard, I've heard, what I'll call civilians say stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, I, and I think the police generally speaking live in that older concept of what bikes are worth and where somebody has stolen a bike that's worth say $5,000 mm-hmm. to me, that's a serious crime. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we know from, uh, all our experience, anecdotal and otherwise, that when a bike gets stolen, the police more or less shrug their shoulders. Yeah, of course a bike got stolen. Bikes get stolen all the time. We're not going to get it back or we're going to get it back and it's going to be garbage or or whatever the case may be. But if someone had stolen $5,000 in cash. Yeah, yeah. 
there, there would be blue lights. There would be blue lights flashing. Mm-hmm. Um, or if someone had $5,000 worth of cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I know that's theft versus drug possession. I know that there are two different crimes, but my point is the, the scale of the reaction is no longer correct. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have a, a, a but or a rebuttal um, uh, to that for my locale. Um, I'm not going to try to assert that this is true anywhere else, but due to the amount, the sheer frequency of bike theft here in Santa Rosa, between the sheriffs and the Santa Rosa Police Department, there's nobody involved in property crime who is unclear on the fact that it's easy to buy a bicycle that can cost $5,000 because there have been so many of them stolen. They, there's no way they can still be laboring under the impression that $300 is an expensive bike. There have been too many multi-thousand dollar bikes stolen here to, to uh, claim ignorance on the, the, you know, just how severe this problem is. Mm. Yeah. Well, then I'm mad at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we settled that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I feel so much not better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the bike theft is, um, from our perspective, you know, it's a very serious crime. Having your bike stolen is like this, uh, major violation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of your personal autonomy and independence. And, you know, these are precious, precious items to us. Yeah. Um, so it's simple in that way, but it, it's also a very complicated uh, crime because, and there was a, there's a long, long piece on um, this kind of crime in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and the the it was a long read and and so the takeaway was that uh, methamphetamine has made its way to northern Vermont, and <laughs> as the people as the uh, as people pursuing that drug who are often unhoused uh, are gathering increasingly in the middle of town, bikes represent. Uh, a currency and a portable currency um, that gets used um, to finance drug purchases, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and so the problem is m- deep. Yep, uh, it's not just like oh, kids are going around jacking bikes. It's like okay, there's there's this one kind of criminal activity and this sort of deeply nested social problem. One of the symptoms of which is bike theft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm tempted to say, I can't believe the cops in Santa Rosa aren't doing a better job of, uh, stopping these petty crimes. But I, at the same time, I understand that, well, actually, you know, a petty, I don't know anything about this guy, uh, where you are, I don't know if he's involved in drugs, but there are many, there may be many layers to an investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They didn't 
find enough drugs uh, to get him for distribution, but there was some amount of possession. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is different from a lot of the folks that we have trouble with in that he is housed. Um, uh, It's quite a large property because he was able to hide lots of big stolen things as well as, as well as small stolen things. Uh, You know, this does point to a larger social justice issue, which is Santa Rosa has done a terrible job of dealing with our homeless people. Um, we we need to have solutions for them uh, in terms of helping them. You know, uh, addiction is a disease. Uh, these people do need help. Um, and the police... You know, they're like a kid standing on the beach, uh, watching the wave wash between their legs. Uh, You know, it's like, how do you hold back the water? Well, they let the homeless problem become so incredibly large uh, and didn't do anything about that. Uh, It's uh, they're they're mostly just wringing their hands. Uh, It's a big not to unpick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and unless you're willing to really tackle this issue um, from, shall we say, a more enlightened perspective, uh, and not deal with uh, addiction as a crime, um, you know, if you if you approach it from a, a public health standpoint uh, and a harm reduction, you get very different results. Um, and we're not doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I think that, I think that's right. And there are very few places that are doing it, despite there being all kind of research about how to solve the problems. Yes. Yes. And it's I shouldn't there. say solve. I should say improve. Address. Yeah. 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 Uh, but to be clear, uh, this guy uh, in, in the social media post, uh, not homeless. No, but he may be buying them from homeless. I mean, you just like how... Is he? I would very much doubt, given the quantity of of stolen items that he has, that he is actually out doing thefts. I could be wrong. I could be he wrong. He could be a fence. Yeah, he could be a fence. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one wonders. Yeah, right. yeah. So, um, well, I'll after this, I'll be calling the sheriff's department again. Yeah. Well, yeah. give us an update on this later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If any update mercilessly, mercifully, mercifully materializes. It might mercilessly materialize (laughs) and I may be inclined to give us, uh, that update. Seems more likely. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Paceline picks, dude. (laughs) Let's have some fun. Let's get to paceline picks. All right. This week I'm picking a coffee table book. Who has a coffee table anymore? I'm picking a coffee table book that is much, much more than a pile of glossy photos. We are right, having having enjoyed the uh, Tour of Flanders this last weekend, we are mm-hmm. right on the eve of Perry roubaix arguably cycling's greatest one-day race. Mm-hmm. And the book I'm talking about is Perry roubaix A Journey Through Hell by a whole array of authors. It's a, it's a large format book. It mm-hmm. is a Velo Press publication. More on that in a moment. Um, This is a coffee table book full of fascinating details about all aspects of Paris-Roubaix. There's a chapter on the cobbles themselves. 
There's one on the weather. Um, it is not a chronological history. It's like an in-depth focus on all of the things that make the race brutal. Or what I, a word that I like is uh, brutal. <laughs> Was that word used in there or did you coin that? No, word? no, I think I think that's mine. Okay. Um, okay. I haven't TM'd it uh, or seed it or art it or whatever I'm supposed to do yet, but I think mm-hmm. that's mine. Brutal. Yeah. Anyway, it's a big, beautiful book that you would happily leave through, but also a book for reading. Uh, and if you love this race or want to know why you should love this race, this book has all the answers. Mm. Here's the tricky bit. Oh, boy. Outside Inc., formerly Pocket Outdoor Media, owners of all the magazines and websites in our corner of the universe that aren't Bicycling Magazine, which is (laughs) itself in turmoil because its owner, Hearst, refuses to negotiate new contracts with its editors. Outside bought Velo Press and, as near as I can tell, lost all the books. <laughs> um yeah, yeah, true story. Um yeah, cuz you if you look up Velo Press and then follow the links, you soon arrive at um a t-shirt a, shop. Yeah. With that has no books. That has no books. They're like, yeah. "Oh, go here for the books." You click there and it's just outside coffee mugs and hats and stuff. There are a bunch of VeloPress books. I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but, you know, sourcing being what it is, there are a bunch of VeloPress books available through Amazon. I believe you. Um, <laughs> if anyone finds a good link for this uh, book that isn't Amazon, uh, send it to me. I couldn't find one. So I'm picking this book. I think it is a brilliant uh, piece of cycling literature, uh, but you'll have to find it yourself. Uh, it's worth the effort, though. I, I, I promise. Cool. Well, I've also picked a book uh, this week. Um, it's the one that I actually mentioned in passing last week. Nowhere Fast by Steve Knievel and Chris McNally. Uh, The subtitle spells out what the book is. Drawings made on planes. Yep. It's it's that it's that's it. That's what it does. Uh, The first half of the book is Stevel's work. And the second half of the book is Chris's. Um, I think everybody listening probably knows who Stevel Knievel is. Um, For those who don't know Chris's name, though, there's a fair chance they have seen his work. He's done a lot of work for Blackburn um, and has other uh, bike industry clients like Chiro and some other brands. Uh, there's a fair chance someone would see the book and recognize his style, um, even though it's in black and white and not in color. Uh, his illustrations that he did when Blackburn first did its rebrand circa 2012, 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess it was 2013. They did the big rebranding. Um, his illustrations for, for all that stuff were just amazing. So evocative. Um, they inspired me to want to go out on a long distance bike tour. And I hadn't wanted to do something like that in a very long time. Uh, so that's how good Chris is. Uh, Stevel's work starts normally enough in the book, uh, drawings of his view on the plane, uh, inside the cabin, but they start to get increasingly recursive kind of meta, you know, 
uh, and then sort of surreal um, <laughs> stuff outside the window that can't really be happening outside the window, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, and then toward the end, you know, for the, for the sharp eyed viewer, they start to get rather poignant. Um, it's, it's really something it's, it's pretty touching in places. Mm. Um, and where Stevel's work is in pencil, Chris's work is in ink and veers into the mind of a creative far more quickly than Stevel's does. Um, it, you know, he includes commentary, which at times is hilarious. Um, but more than anything, he kind of uh, he kind of shines a light on the indignities of flying in the main cabin. Um, that's just on full display. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anybody who has had uh, a rotten time flying somewhere will certainly resonate with this. Uh, I suggest folks drop by all hail the black market and pick up a copy. If for no reason other than the fact that some acquisitions editor at some publisher didn't tell them that they couldn't mix pencil and ink or some other crazy thing within one book, it's the work of two creatives unleashed. And it's just a wonderful thing from that standpoint. I was I was talking to my wife earlier today. Uh, she went to go see some. So, you know, we, we live in Boston and one of the you know, 6,000 colleges that are here is the Berkeley College of Music. Mm. And so she went to see a performance of Berkeley uh, College students uh, last night, and she was sort of talking about how encouraged she was that, like, this amazing show was put on by these kids. <laughs> and uh, the cost of education being what it is today, uh, I said, you know, I think it is brave it is brave for writers, artists, musicians to pursue their pursuit, knowing that the society around them isn't going to reward them for it. Yeah. Yeah. Our yeah. society expects there to be good words and good pictures and good music everywhere, but they really don't want to pay for it for mm-hmm whatever reason we've arrived where we are. And so I think it's enormously brave. And I think that the reason to buy this book is that it supports two artists who are doing their thing. They are just doing their thing. This is their work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can have it and you can help them make more of it. And it's funny as hell. (laughs) There is that. There is that. There are some laugh out loud moments in that book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, there will be a link in our show notes. That's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Uh, what are some of the interesting things we've got coming up on TCI? Well, uh, we have a continuing work from John Rizel, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I've got a backlog of them to edit. He is prolific. He is as prolific as he is profound. Um, we have a slew of reviews between the two of us. Mm-hmm. I have another episode of The Long Way Home that I hope to be wrapping up this week to appear next week. Um, I don't know. What am I missing? Uh, I, um, yeah, I'm blanking. Yeah, there's a lot in the pipeline. <laughs> We're so good at self-promotion. Um, all right. This is where we ask you to subscribe if you haven't already. Go ahead. 
click that button now, please uh, send us some questions. We love responding to questions here. So if you've got an idea or a request or an interrogative, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. Also, as we've just mentioned, if you haven't checked out our other podcasts, Revolting, uh, and then uh, The Long Way Home, um, please do so. Maybe consider leaving a review wherever it is you found us. It makes it more likely other people will listen. And we accept constructive criticism as well. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. <laughs>